Man, it is uh, so true. What a Every time we sing that song, you know, it's like gets to me. I, I feel like uh, it's like my favorite song right now. And I just, you know, after not being here for two weeks with you guys, it's good to be back with you. It's good to be back and, and sing with my church family. Thank you, Phil and worship team for leading us in worship uh, so well week in and week out. Um, but after being gone for two weeks, I can say that like one of the things I really miss when I'm gone is worshiping, you know, physically present with you. Watching on the live stream is great. I love to be able to do that. If you're listening in on the live stream right now, glad you're with us. But there's just something different about, um, you know, being here worshiping in person with you. So, um, you know, I'm glad to be back with you guys today. But I, I'm also so grateful for uh, staff that uh, leads so well. Um, when I'm gone, I'm, you know, I'm thinking about Bill Letcher wrapping up our, our Connected Sermon Series a couple weeks ago. Uh, we had all the events that took place with the ministry fair and the picnic and Bryson launching out new groups that got started. I think we have like 100 people in our church who have never been connected to a group in our church that took the step to get connected. So we're praising the Lord for that. Um, I, I was you know, watching Mission Sunday online last Sunday. Praise the Lord for Aldine. Uh, praise the Lord for Jim Corbin, our missions team that uh, put together such a wonderful service to remind us of God's heart for the nations and then to see more and more UBC people take steps to live lives where we are carrying out the mission that we believe God has called us to, to be about, which is to know him and then make him known in the world, right? That's why we're here as a church. And so um, if you're new with us today, welcome. Uh, we are glad that you're here with us, but we exist as a church to know him and make him known. That's, that's why we're here and uh, I'm glad that you're here, and I'm glad to be back with you this Sunday after two weeks out on vacation. So uh, if you have your Bible today, you can take it now and open it up to the book of Ruth. We're going to be kicking into a new sermon series this Sunday, um, going straight through the Old Testament book of Ruth, that little four-chapter Old Testament sweet, sweet book, right? I know it can kind of be hard to find in your Bible if you're not familiar with it, so Feel free to use that table of contents in the front of your Bible if that helps you. Uh, it's the eighth book of your Old Testament. It falls right in between Judges and 1 Samuel. So you can turn there if you have your Bible. Um, while you're turning there, let me just say, uh, I, I don't know how familiar you are with the, the book of Ruth. Maybe some of you have studied it at length. I know some of you have. I know some of you have taught classes through the book of Ruth. Um, I know that probably there are others of you who maybe uh, aren't familiar with this book at all. Maybe some of you who've never read it or didn't even know that this book existed in the Bible. Um, you know, I can say this, uh, as I've started to refresh myself on this book and this study, man, this book is really, really good. I am so grateful to be going through this with you guys today. You know, um, on one hand, it's like a beautiful love story. So if you're all about the, the romance movies and the Pride and Prejudice, if you're a Pride and Prejudice fan, you are all over the book of Ruth, right? Like, you're going to love it. Uh, guys who are in the room, you don't even need to, like, take your, your girl out on a date night for the rest of this month. Just bring her to church on Sunday mornings. Like, you're in. Like, you're going to be all good after that, right? Um, so on one hand, the book of Ruth is uh, a great love story. On the other hand, the book of Ruth is rich in theology. I mean, it's really strong when it comes to uh, presenting to us attributes of God, his sovereignty, his providence, his omnipotence, his work throughout all of history, right? So when we read this love story in the Old Testament, let's not forget, like, this is still God's word, right? This is still the Holy Spirit-inspired word of God that he has given us to reveal himself to people like us um, for his purposes. And so whether you are a sucker for a good love story or whether 
history and theology is kind of your thing and you're a total nerd, then we uh, are glad that you're here. Ruth is for you, okay? Um, Now, we're going to get into chapter one in just a minute, but before we do, here's how we're going to work through today's sermon. Like always, I just want to work verse by verse through chapter one. Uh, We're going to spend some extra time in verse one, just kind of refreshing ourselves on biblical history and context And uh, then we're going to work our way through the rest of the chapter. I'll make some teaching points along the way. And like always, we'll close with some takeaways for us where I really want to call you today to respond and to pay attention to what God is saying to you personally, right? We, uh, we, We hear God's word, but we want to respond to it, right? We believe this is a part of why preaching matters because the, the preaching of God word, God's word calls us to respond to him. So we're gonna end today with some takeaways that call for you to consider your response to the Lord. So that's how we'll work through today's message. Let's uh, jump into verse one again, spending some extra time on context. And once we see the context, it helps us appreciate the text. So let's look at verse one together. It says this. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. So right away, I just kind of want to stop and pay attention to that opening phrase. It says, now in the days when the judges ruled. So we've got to understand, this is the setting. It's the days when the judges ruled. It's, if, if you just look like back one page in your Bible, you'll probably see that that's the, the previous book of the Bible is the book of Judges. So the events of Ruth are happening during the same time as the events of the book of Judges. So I know that maybe some of you are very familiar with the timeline, the history, um, the way that that, uh, biblical events rolled out in in the course of history. Some of you are very familiar. Others of you may not be. So let me just take about 10 minutes and, and just give us the context of where the story of Ruth falls within the, the big kind of picture of the scriptural narrative, okay? So what we have first starting out Bible timeline is the book of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the world, right? It was perfectly good. He made Adam and Eve. Um, they, they chose to sin. Their sin and it results in brokenness coming into the world. Their sin gets passed down to their children and their children's children, passes through generations. So from Adam and Eve, you know, we see their children are born, and eventually we get to the story of Noah and the flood. And after Noah, we get to about 2000 BC, where God calls a man named Abraham. Abraham has sons named Isaac and Jacob. You keep reading through the book of Genesis, you meet an important character named Joseph. And uh, the way that God worked in his life was amazing. But these are the major characters essentially in the book of Genesis. Well, then we get to the second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus. And the main character there is the man named Moses, right? And so around 1500 BC, God raises up Moses and he says, look, my people Israel, they are being enslaved by Egypt. I want you to go to tell Pharaoh to let him go. And um, all the events of, of Exodus take place. They occur. Eventually we see um, Moses leading the, the children of Israel out of Egypt. He's on Mount Sinai. He gets the Ten Commandments. You've probably seen the movie, right? So all these things that, that occur, these are all things that occur in the book of Exodus. But then you have like things like Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy in your Old Testament Bible where, you know, there's other, um, the law of God is presented, Uh, Other things that occur within the narrative of Exodus are kind of drawn out in further detail in in Leviticus and Numbers. So, you know, we start to see things unfold. But here's my point. During, when God was uh, calling Moses, 
Um, part of the, the covenant that God made with his people during the time of Moses was that God said to his people, like, look, um, if you follow me and if you obey me, you're going to experience my blessing. If you worship me as the one true God and worship me alone, I'm going to pour my blessings out on you in every way, in your lands, in your fields, in your homes, uh, in your wombs. Like, you're going to experience my blessing in every way. But then God also said, but if you turn your backs away from me and if you worship other gods and you start to live in disobedience to me, you break our covenant, then I'm going to curse you, and I'm going to curse your lands, and I'm going to curse your fields, and I'm going to curse uh, your livestock, and, and your, your, your wombs will be barren, and all these things that God brings forward. So at one point, if you read this in Deuteronomy chapter 28, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 28, God actually says that part of his curse toward them, if they live in rebellion, will be the curse of drought, famine. He says that, that rains are going to feel like powder to you. Uh, your fields are going to be like iron, that the worm and the locust are going to consume all your crops, right? So God says, if you turn away from me, if you break this covenant, this is what's going to happen to you, which is what they end up doing, right? And so as you continue down the Old Testament timeline, Moses dies, Joshua begins leading around 1400 to 1300 BC. Joshua leads the people of Israel into the promised land that God had, uh, you know, committed to bring them to. When they get there, after a while, um, there's this period where the judges rule. Uh, during this time, there was no king in Israel. God raised up judges, which were like strong military leaders who would um, help facilitate leadership in the kingdom. But here's the thing. In the book of Judges, which again comes right before Ruth and your Bible, the phrase that's the key, the key phrase in the book of Judges is this. It repeatedly says that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. In fact, that's the very last sentence in the book of Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. People just lived how they wanted to live. They didn't care about how God wanted them to live. They, this is exactly what the people of Israel did. They began to break God's laws and his rules. They started to uh, get involved with people from foreign nations who worshiped false gods. They started to intermarry with those people. They started to take on the idol worship of those people, and they broke their covenant with the, the God who had brought them out of Egypt. Now, again, part of that sin that happened was that they looked at these other nations and they said, they all have strong, powerful human kings. We don't have one. We need a human king. And so there's a lot of events that unfold there, but eventually God says, okay, if you want a king, I'll give you a king. And we enter into this season of the kings. So 1100 to 1000 BC, God gives kings like Saul and David and Solomon who come and they, they start to reign and rule. And of course, there's a lot of other history that unfolds over centuries in the rest of the Old Testament. But eventually you get to about 27 AD, which is where Jesus begins his ministry. And most of the events in the Gospels in the New Testament of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, most of them kind of start around that time period, around 27 AD. So I'm pointing this out to you because by the end of today's sermon, you're gonna see a direct connection between Ruth and Jesus, right? But for right now, really all I want you to understand is where Ruth falls in the context. So the book of Ruth occurs in that time period there between 1250 and 1150 BC. That's where Ruth falls in this historical timeline. It, it's, it's during the days when the judges ruled. It's when the people were living in this sinful rebellion towards God, and because of that, a great famine had come upon their land. Now, Verse 1 tells us that due to this famine, 
uh, there was a man named Bethlehem who went to sojourn in Moab. All right, this is interesting. So you, this man takes his family, they leave the promised land, they leave Bethlehem where they are, they go to sojourn into Moab. Now this is interesting because he's in Bethlehem. Um, Bethlehem was part of the promised land. The word Bethlehem actually means house of bread. It was called that because uh, the region around Bethlehem was known for producing wheat and that type of thing. So they called it the house of bread. But here a man has to take his family and leave the house of bread because he was in what? He was in a place of famine. So the man takes his family to a new place. They go to this place called Moab. Um, You know what the word Moab means? The word Moab means son of father. Son of father. Now why, what's what's the deal behind that? Well, in the Old Testament, if you read the book of Genesis, you'll see that Moab was not just a place. Moab was actually a person. The person Moab was actually um, connected to a man named Lot. Now, you may or may not know Lot's story. You can read about it in the book of Genesis. But Lot was Abraham's nephew. Lot lived in the place called Sodom, which was connected to Sodom and Gomorrah, the two cities that God destroyed with fire and brimstone because of their sin. Well, after God destroyed Sodom, Lot was allowed to leave there. But after he left, he committed a great sin. You know what Lot did? Lot committed incest with his two daughters. And his two daughters had sons. And one of those daughters named her son Moab, which means son of father, right? You see where the connection goes there? So Moab is a place where its roots are, are far from the ways of God. Moab, um, you know, you can see the picture here on the screen. It's east of the Dead Sea there. Um, but Moab was a place that was known for its sin. It was known for living in opposition to God. All through the Old Testament, the Moabites and the Israelites were at odds with each other. The Israelites kind of viewed it as a God-forsaken land. Um, the Moabites worshipped false gods. Their main god was a god named Chemosh. And the, one of the ways in which they worshipped Chemosh was that they would practice child sacrifice. Right? You can read about that in 2 Kings chapter 3 in your Old Testament. But they were detestable in the eyes of the Lord, right? So Israel historically wanted nothing to do with Moab or the Moabites. Yet, here in the book of Ruth, we see a man from Israel leaving Bethlehem to go precisely to Moab. So that's my really long introduction to verse 1, right? I don't know if we're going to make it through the whole chapter or not. We'll see, but that's the context. The rest of the story falls within this, all right? I hope it helps. Verse 2, the name of the man... Right, the man who, who sojourned. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in, Judea, in Judah. Ef, by the way, Ephrathah is the region around Bethlehem, is the area around Bethlehem, so Ephrathites, people who are from that area. They went to the country of Moab, and they remained there. So we learn that the man who moves his family, his name is Elimelech. Elimelech, his name means God is king. So we can see that he's probably a person who recognized Yahweh as as king and Lord. Uh, Elimelech is, you know, making this decision, probably the best decision he can think of in the moment. 
he decides to just, I got to take my family, I got to move away from here. There's a famine in this area. So they decide of all places to go to Moab. And so he takes them around uh, the Dead Sea. They move the 50 miles over into that region. This is a, a tough situation for this family, right? They're a family on the move in a difficult scenario. It's about to get even tougher though, because look what happens in verse three. Verse three says, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died and she was left with her two sons. So here the situation goes from bad to worse for Naomi, right? Naomi, uh, she becomes a widow. At first they were kind of just fleeing a famine. Now you have a wife and her two sons, a family without a father who's still searching for food, right? Their situation's getting tougher. And here it gets even more messy. So look at verse four. Verse four says, these, talking about Naomi's sons, these took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years. So you might be thinking, hey, what's the problem with that? Like we got two guys, they're in a new area, they find women, they get married. Like what's the deal? That seems positive. Well, you have to remember Malon and Kilion, right? They were Israelites, they were Jews, right? And so according to their Jewish law, they weren't supposed to intermarry with non-Jewish people, which by the way, quick little side note, just for clarification, I want to make it clear because historically we've had issues with this, especially in our country. God is not opposed to interracial marriage. Um, so when you read the Old Testament, don't read, you know, God forbidding Jews to intermarry with other, with other people groups. Don't read that as God being opposed to interracial marriage. What God is opposed to is his people being unequally yoked with unbelievers, that's an Old Testament principle carried over into the New Testament. God's people are supposed to marry other believers, right? So um, throughout the Old Testament, you'll see sometimes God actually calls his people specifically to marry people of other nations. Um, and uh, so God's not opposed to interracial marriage. He's opposed to his people marrying unbelievers. This becomes a problem um, because these boys uh, take Moabite wives, Right? They, these are, they're taking wives from a people who worship Chemosh and practice child sacrifice. Yet, you know, this is what's happening in Naomi's life with her sons. So things are getting more complicated. On to verse 5, it says this, um, that, uh, and both Malon and Kilion died. So the woman, Naomi, was left without her two sons and her husband. So this is Naomi's situation, man. She is experiencing all kinds of loss. She's lost her home. She left her community. She lost her husband. She lost her sons. Now she's a widow. In this extremely sad and lonely and empty situation, her life was full of loss. Maybe some of you are here today, and even when I say the word loss, like it's, it's doing something emotionally in you because for you today, like it's just, you're going through a season of loss. Something's happened. I don't know, your, I don't know all of your situations. I do know we have some people in our congregation who are walking through loss right now. They know what it's like to lose family members, sons, spouses, this is her scenario, a widow full of loss. So what's she going to do? Look at verse 6. Verse 6 says, Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return to the country of Moab, for she heard um, to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. 
So she set out from the place where she was, that's Moab, with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. So right here, I imagine Naomi's on the way back to Judah with her daughters-in-law and it strikes her that these young ladies are with her and, and they probably feel obligated to care for her and things like that. And, and so she essentially looks at them and she tells them, girls, it, it's okay for you to return home. You're free. You're free from the covenant that you made with your deceased spouse, my sons. You're, you're free to find new husbands. You're free to return to your own families. You're free from caring from an old widow like me. You're free to make a new life. She says they're free. She wishes, wishes the Lord's blessing on them. So how are they going to respond? Look at verse 10. Verse 10 says, And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. So there's a lot that we're going to unpack here, but first I got to just address the obvious one. Like, what is Naomi talking about when she says, like, maybe you girls, uh, you know, are you really going to sit around here and wait for me to have more sons to become your husbands? Like, what's that? The answer to that question is that the Jews practiced something called leveret marriage. And leveret marriage was a practice that worked like this. If a man died and he left behind a widow, and if that same man had brothers who were still living, then the living brothers would take the widow as their wife and actually have children through them so that the family lineage through that widow could continue on. Which is weird, <laughs> right? Right? right, like, uh, I'm not going to keep talking about it. <laughs> it's just weird, right? Well, like, but that's the way it was back then, okay? And, and uh, Naomi is saying to her daughters-in-law, she's saying, like, I have no living sons left to marry you. I'm likely too old to have any future sons who could take you in and, and take you as their spouse. So, in fact, even if I could right now at this age have a child, you're not going to wait till he grows up and uh, becomes, you know, marryable, right? So you, you just need to go back home, find yourself new husbands, and it'll be okay. You're free. That's what she's saying in verse 10 through 13. Now, why would she be urging her daughters-in-law to go back this way? Here's why, I think. I think it's because she realized how hard it would be for them among the people of Israel. Like, I can't imagine how hard life is as a widow, period. It's got to be even harder as an older widow, uh, knowing that it's very unlikely you're, you're ever going to remarry again. But what could be harder than that? 
I think Naomi realizes it. She realizes her daughters-in-law, if they stay with her, they're going to come into the land of Israel among the Israelite people who want nothing to do with Moabites. So here are these two women that Naomi loves, and she's saying, like, if you come with me, it's going to be harder for you. So she tells them to go back to their families. Well, this makes sense. On to verse 14. Verse 14 says, They lifted up their voices and they wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. Right? She's, she's saying goodbye. But Ruth clung to her. So they all have this strong love for each other, this emotional attachment. It's a sad scenario. Orpah decides to return home. Ruth stays with Naomi. And they have this beautiful moment where there is love and loyalty on display at a human level. But here's the thing. There is something so much deeper going on in the plan of God that they don't even realize. We'll get into that in just a minute. Let's see how the rest of this situation plays out. Look what verse 15 says. Uh, Naomi um, has Ruth clinging to her, and, and verse 15 says, And she, Naomi, said... See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. And here comes this beautiful set of words that we've seen in wedding vows and, you know, covenant commitments. She says, for where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So in this moment right here, you have um, a contrast that the author is bringing out. There's a big difference here between Orpah and Ruth. You have Orpah who returns to her home, returns to her people. She returns to her false gods. And you have Ruth, who stays at Naomi's side and joins with Naomi's people and commits to following Naomi's God, the one true God. And she does so with this language that is not just poetic fluff. I mean, this is, this is a covenant commitment. She says, I'm staying where you stay. I'm going where you go. I'm worshiping who you worship. I'm dying where you die. That's covenant language. This is a, a defining moment in Ruth's life right here. I mean, she, she could have gone back. She could have gone back to her family, the place where she was familiar, uh, her own community. But she chooses full well knowing that if she goes with Naomi back amongst the Israelites, the Jews, she may just be choosing to live a life of singleness until the day she's dead and buried right beside Naomi. So she chooses to go with Naomi and she commits herself to Naomi's God. This is a major turning point in her life. So when Naomi saw this, she stopped trying to persuade Ruth to go back to Moab. So they continue on together. Let's look at verse 19 and see what happens. Verse 19 says, So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred up because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? 
Right? So these are the same women who were probably with Naomi 10 years ago when she had left with her husband. It was, must have been a big deal because they remembered her. They remembered her situation. They knew that she left. Right? It wasn't like, here she's back. They're surprised. The town is stirred up. So, she, so they say, is this Naomi? And look what she says in verse 20. She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Lord has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full. You can tell that Naomi's, she's not exactly believing what is true here. She didn't go away full. She left during a famine, right? Uh, life wasn't all wonderful when she left, right? Um, she says, I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Now barley harvest is mentioned here intentionally. Uh, the, the, re- the, the writer wants the reader to, to begin to envision this spring season where the harvest is coming in and, and things are, are vibrant and alive and in the coming chapters we're going to get into all that and we're going to see why that's there but that's future chapters today. We're focused on chapter one so as we kind of start to land the plane in this sermon, I I want us to hone in on Naomi's words here in verse 20 and 21, where she says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. You know what Naomi means? Naomi means pleasant. She says, don't call me pleasant. Instead, call me Mara. You know what Mara means? Mara means bitter. Call me bitter. It's like Naomi, she's, she's really dealing with stuff on the inside, and she's She's getting stirred up. She, she doesn't even want to be, be called pleasant anymore. She says, I want you to call me bitter because in her mind, she's saying, I'm no longer pleasant to God. Apparently, God uh, has a distaste for me. Apparently, God would just rather spit me out and have nothing to do with my life. She feels like God has rejected her. And fr- frankly, you get the sense that she believes God has ruined her life. So for her, she's saying, I must be bitter to God. When really what was going on in her heart is she's indicating that she's actually bitter at God. And I have to say, this is part of why I love the Bible. How can I say that? We're talking about bitter people, right? Like, here's why. Because the Bible is an honest book, right? It's human. It understands like people are real people with real feelings, real emotions, And that even God's people really struggle sometimes with things like bitterness toward him, right? The Bible is an honest book. She knows God. Naomi is one of his people, but she's hurting. Eventually, she's going to really see God's goodness in her life. But right now, she's getting bitter. And maybe some of us in the room can relate. Maybe some of you can relate. Maybe you can relate right now. Because for you, you might know God. He's yours, you're his, but life has taken some really tough turns. And if you're honest, there are moments when you can kind of get accusatory towards God, like, you're ruining my life. Why are you letting this happen to me? And you can start to let this bitterness build up in your heart towards God, believing that his hand is against you. If you find yourself there today, I've got two takeaways for us that kind of tie into all this. The first takeaway for us today is this. When you find yourself getting bitter at God, remember he's doing something better than you can imagine. 
when you find yourself getting bitter at God, remember he's doing something better than you can imagine, right? Naomi thought God's hand had gone out against her. That's what she said, right? Don't call me pleasant. Call me bitter. God's hand has gone out against me, right? She believes, that's what she believes. What she doesn't quite understand yet is that God's hand's not against her. God's hand is for her and with her all along. She didn't know it, but here's the thing. God was going to use her to be part of bringing the Messiah into the world. See, where, where did God, you guys can answer out loud, where did God have Naomi return to? Where did he have her go? Bethlehem. Who was born in Bethlehem? Jesus. Now, if you remember the birth story of Jesus, why did Jesus end up being born in Bethlehem? It's because Mary and Joseph, while, she, while, while Mary was pregnant, they had to go and be part of a census, and everybody had to go to their, kind of their family lineage's hometown to be counted, right? And so it says that Mary and Joseph had to return to Bethlehem because they were from the house and lineage of David. Well, what we're going to see when we get to chapter 4, and you can just read it on your own if you want to, but what we're going to see in chapter 4 is that David came from Bethlehem from his father, Jesse. Jesse got there from his father, Obed. Obed got there from his father, Boaz, who we're going to meet in the next couple chapters. Boaz had a wife who was named Ruth, who he met in Bethlehem because she arrived with a woman named Naomi. God is awesome. I mean, really, like, think about, like, God is, he, he is bringing the Messiah into the world through a Jewish uh, woman and her husband who kind of went to live in the land of Moab where God brought a Moabite woman who would have the Jews have always, like, rejected to be part of Jesus' family lineage. Like, that is amazing. This is the way God works. So, God's hand wasn't against Naomi at all. It was upon her and for her all along. She just didn't realize it. When moments of loss come, when we're feeling empty, when we are feeling bitter, when we're feeling like God's hand has gone out against us, guys, we must remember God's hand is actually for his people all along, even when we can't see it. Uh, I had such a, a beautiful reminder of this uh, over these past couple weeks while we were on family vacation. My my in-laws all get together every couple years down in South Carolina, big uh, family reunion. And we're, one of the things that we do there is like everybody, um, all the family that's there are strong believers and Christ followers. And so we get together at a time in the week and we kind of just give life updates and share prayer requests. And we look back from two years ago and kind of remember where life was to what's happened now. And, and we have this sweet time of sharing and prayer. Well, one of the ladies who is with us there, her name's Lauren, and in the past two years, you know, um, between, between our family reunions, during that time period, Lauren got diagnosed with cancer. And so we're going around the room, and we're just kind of checking in, and we ask Lauren, like, how, she, how are you doing, Lauren, the cancer thing and all of that? And here she is in the room with her son and her three grandsons, 
and she's been battling cancer that could have took her away from those boys that she loved. And here's what she says. She says, how am I doing? She says, I found more joy in the Lord during cancer than I ever did before cancer. Like, what is that? You know that? It's amazing. That is somebody who has set their hope in the Lord. That is somebody who has learned to find joy in the Lord, not just favorable circumstances, right? She's explaining this, and I'm over there in the corner trying to, like, not anybody let anybody see me cry, and everybody's around. And it's amazing to me. Why? Because she has learned that God is up to good things, even when everything in life is, seems like it's going wrong, right? So listen. She realized God's hand wasn't against her. She realized that God's hand has been for her and with her all along. And I want to say this to you. If you're one of God's people, that same thing is true of you. God's hand is for you and with you all along. So when trouble comes your way, how are you going to respond, right? How are you going to respond? Because you, you could get bitter. You could get mad and angry. But what's it going to do? Like, it's, it's, it's not even going to help you. Right? It, it doesn't do any good. So you could choose that or you can pour your heart out to God and keep it real and be honest and you can say, God, I don't want this circumstance. I don't understand this circumstance. It, it doesn't even feel like you're here, but I believe you are. And yes, at times it feels like you have spat me out and turned your back on me, but I trust that you're here. And in the moments when I want to walk away from you, Lord, I have to be honest and say, where else am I going to go? Because you alone, oh Lord, have the words of life, right? You've brought me through before. You're going to bring me through again. Even if I don't get it now, I'm going to understand it later. So whether it makes sense now or whether it makes sense in eternity, I choose to trust you because you are sovereign in every way and you are good every day. God is always up to something beautiful, even in the midst of life's worst circumstances. And I want our church as we grow on, and I want to be a man that believes that, right? This isn't just me like pastorally trying to rile up a cheer. Like I am saying like, why is Ruth in the Bible? It's to show us like how God works through human suffering to bring about Jesus the Messiah and to show us that God's good hand is at work in the midst of tragic human circumstances, even when you can't see it. And I want us to be a church that believes that. And I want to be a man and a husband and a father that believes that. God's doing better things than we can imagine, and he's doing it all the time because he works all things for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And if that's true, then that means God's hand is never against you. It's never against you. It's always for you. Even in the moments of correction, like sometimes God's hand does come against us in, corre in correction and discipline, right? But have we not forgotten that the disciplinary hand of God is also for our good? It's good for the disciplinary hand of God to come against us if it brings us back to him because he's the best place to be. Which ties right into the second takeaway for you today. Second takeaway is this. If you've been living in your own Moab, it's time to return home to God. If you've been living in your own little Moab, it's, it's time to return home to God, right? Naomi had been living in the land of Moab. It's a, a place that was forbidden by God, a God-forsaken place. Her husband had kind of called her to go there, so she went with him. 
So Naomi found herself there, but her husband died, and she could have went back home. She stayed. She stayed in Moab. She could have taken her sons out of there. They stayed. They married Moab wives, right? But she chose to stay. Like, it was a 50-mile walk. She could have made that walk in a couple days. But she stayed at least for a while until the Lord took her husband and her sons died and she found herself in this place of desperation. And it was in that place of desperation that the Lord called her out of Bethlehem, out of Moab and called her back to Bethlehem. So she left Moab and the scripture says that she returned to Bethlehem. She returned. You know what that is a picture of? Leaving one place, going back to the place where the Lord is, that is a biblical picture of repentance. You live in one way, you turn, get your mind and your heart set on the Lord again. That's the biblical picture of repentance. And I want to close today by just saying, you know, I believe that there may be some of you here today who need to repent. Some of you may be here today to repent. God, you know, you've been living in your own little Moab, away from the Lord. You've been apart from the community of believers. You've been away from the church. You've been running from God. You've been living your own way, doing your own thing, kind of like the people in the book of Judges, just doing whatever is right in your own eyes, right? And now life has fallen apart. Your circumstances are terrible. You've, you've kind of, it's not working out for you to live apart from God. So what is God doing? Like, I believe he has you here today on purpose as an act of mercy saying, hey, you know what? I'm still here. You can come home. The church is a place where sinners can come home. You can come home. Some of you may have been running from the Lord for a long time. You may have been running from the Lord for years or decades. It only takes a moment to repent. A moment to turn your heart from Moab back to the God of Bethlehem. In order to turn to God, it means you're going to have to turn away from sin. In order to come back to the God of Bethlehem, you have to leave your Moab behind. So I got to ask you today, is there some part of your old life in Moab that you you need to leave behind, right? Some of you Maybe some of you have never turned away from Moab. You've never turned away from your your place of sin and you've never come home to the Lord. Come home to him today. Some of you are are believers. Like you've you've had repentance in your life before where you've turned, but in some way you've, you've kind of started wandering back out to life in Moab. Is there some part of your life in Moab that you need to leave behind today? You know, is your dating life in Moab today? Let me ask you that. Single people in the room, you know, is your dating life in Moab because you find yourself always dating whoever, whenever? Are you dating somebody who's not a believer? Unequally yoked? Like, God has a better way for you. God wants to bring you a godly person who loves him that you can be equally yoked with as you get married and raise a family. If you're dating an unbeliever, it's time to leave that relationship behind. Is your media life in Moab? What's your, what's your movie selection like? What's your, 
TV selection like? What's your internet selection like? Some of it, you know, some people, it's like Moab just has its roots there, you know? It's time to repent and turn. Is your financial life in Moab, you know? For some people, and especially in our American culture, like it's always just onward and upward, you know, upward mobility, just better house, better cars, better stuff. And really, we can find ourselves living in the materialistic land of Moab all the while forgetting about the mission of God, never giving anything to the Lord's work, never caring for the poor or needy among us, never even giving a thought to missionaries. Like, you know, are you finding part of your life still stuck over here in Moab financially? Some of you are still living in Moab emotionally. You're angry. Something has made you mad. Emotionally, your heart is still filled with unforgiveness. You are living in the Moab of unforgiveness. And it is not working out for you. It's not good. Why? Because God wants you to leave that land behind and return to him. Maybe God's calling some of you out of Moab today. Listen, if this is you, God is waiting for you to come home. It takes just a moment of turning, right? A a moment of surrender, a moment of repentance. And this this might be for you today, a defining moment that sets the trajectory of your life. So will you, like Orpah, Return to Moab, or will you, like Ruth and Naomi, return to the Lord? Because the same Jesus that came into this world by his hand on Naomi and his work in the womb of Ruth, that same Jesus died for the forgiveness of every one of your sins that you've ever committed in the land of Moab. Whatever your heart has been drawn to there, Jesus came to forgive you of that and to set you free from it. So come home today. Come out of your Moab. The Lord will meet you as you come and you find yourself at home in Jesus. Lord, we thank you for our time together in your word today. I thank you for the wonderful reminders of your sovereign providential hand at work. And Lord, that you don't stop working when life is the hardest for us. Oh Lord, I want to pray right now for people in our church. You know the ones who are, they feel empty like Naomi. They feel the pain of loss. Lord, would you let them cling near, cling closely to you and draw near to you like never before. And may you, Lord, as they're drawing near, fill their heart, overwhelm their heart with your love. You promised to send the Holy Spirit to be a comforter. Lord, uh, let, let the work of your Holy Spirit come alive in their hearts right now in this season of loss and heartache. Lord, I pray also for those who 
have been living in Moab for a long time, and they feel torn. They are tempted like Orpah to stay and go back to the land of the world and sin. Oh, Lord, would you, by your grace, draw them to repentance and faith and bring them home all the way to you today? Lord, I want to praise you for drawing me to yourself in my bitter and angry days and bringing me out of the Moab of my life. And I pray that today might be a turning point for someone else who's hearing this message, whether in this room or online, whether listening today or at a later date. I ask, Lord, that you might stir somebody's heart to find home in you today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.